Amen. Amen. What a beautiful song. I love that song. If you have a Bible, um, if you would, open up with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. That's page 1341 in the Pew Bible. You don't have a physical copy of the Word of God with you, or you don't want to use your phone, or just have need of a Bible, there it is. Uh, don't forget that if you don't have a Bible and you want one to read, um, then you can take that one. Now, if you don't read it, you owe us $10,000 for it. But uh, it's free to a good home as long as it'll be, as long as it'll be read. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Oh God, I ask you if you would, please open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, by the power of your Spirit, I pray we'll be changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've got a question for you. When was the last time you were truly offended? I mean, when was the last time you really took offense at something? Now, some of us really pride ourselves and have come to kind of pride ourselves on never being offended. In fact, some of us are sort of like, just test me. I bet you can't offend me. We, that's how we think. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, to try not to be offended. I, I actually work hard to just think through, if I, if I don't have to take an offense, let's not do it. If I don't have to. But other folks, maybe even some of us here, live our lives in a near perpetual state of being offended. Um, for whatever reason. Some of us just feel like we matter the most. And so anytime something happens to us, or anytime we don't like something, it must matter the most too. Um, first of all, it's not true. <laughs> And second of all, it's a miserable way to live. It's just no fun. I think we've all met people who are just miserable by keeping score. These days, it seems like a lot of people are offended. We talk about this a lot. We notice a lot that it feels like everyone's offended. You know, it's become sort of a little cottage industry to make fun of people who are offended. It seems like a lot of folks are so offended by everyone being offended that they feel like they should be offensive just to prove how not offended they are. I mean, yeah, that's right. It is hard to keep up with how we ought to feel, how, what we ought to do. Now, some of this, I agree, can get a little silly. A lot of us need to remember what our mamas called manners, though. Not try to cause needless offense to people. You know, God didn't appoint you. God didn't appoint you to be the fixer of PC culture. Uh, that's not to say that we ought to give in to it necessarily, but what it does mean, though, is that we ought to, as Christians, recognize that we can live free from all of this. 
We can live free from being so worried about all the snowflakes that we live in a state of perpetual rage and we can feel free, we can be free from living where we're perpetually offended by everything around us because we are gripped by the most offensive thing in the universe. And that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Pastor, you get up here every week and you tell us this is good news, and it is, but it is offensive good news. It's offensive good news. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that we are desperate sinners. And in a therapeutic age, it's hard for us to hear that we are desperate sinners. In an age where, not necessarily anything wrong with this sort of thing, but in an age where therapy and self-care and all these things are purported to fix all of our problems. And it might fix some of our problems, there's no question. Some of us might need to focus a little more on putting the oxygen mask on before we put the oxygen mask on others. Don't mishear me. But when these things are purported to fix all our problems, it's hard to hear that we're desperate sinners. It's hard to hear in a therapeutic age what the cross tells us, that we are not enough. We're not enough to save ourselves. We are not good enough in ourselves to do what needs to be done to fix our lives. The cross tells us something so deeply offensive about us that we could do nothing to save ourselves. In fact, I think the cross is even a, a reminder of our sin. Look, there's one right back there. You, at, at, during worship, you look at it. Uh, we've got a new decoration in the hallway out here. There's a mirror. And I don't like to f- fancy myself as a vain man, but I'm about to stand up here in front of y'all and be on TV, and so there's a mirror right outside the church office. And as I'm walking out, I always step back out of the hall so nobody can see me looking in the mirror and look in the mirror and just make sure my tie's straight and, you know, uh, my toupee's glued on good and everything and just make sure everything's right. Just get everything, get everything ready to go. And so, uh, but there's a new piece of decor there. There's a huge cross right in the middle of that mirror. And one day I was walking out, and the first thing I thought was, man, I wonder why they put this cross here. I can't see myself anymore. <laughs> we'll let that sit there for a moment. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Because that cross is there, and I can't see myself anymore blocks of view right i can't see me without looking past the cross the cross is offensive we could do nothing to save ourselves when we look at it when we see it when you see it there i love that it's looming over me it's right there when you look up here when you see this you are reminded that there is no pride there is no glory in the flesh there is no boasting in the shadow of the cross there's nothing we can say Except be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. I want to show you three truths today about the impact that this offensive gospel has on our lives. I I want to show you three truths today about the impact that this offensive gospel has on our lives. Three, Three things that this impacts in our hearts and lives. Here's the first truth. And I think each of these truths, if we understand them correctly are offensive to us in our flesh. Here's the first. 
the offensive gospel is for all of life. The offensive gospel is for all of life. I bet many of us here can remember after church on Sundays, and we didn't have one in Boaz, but we would come to Gadsden to go to the cafeteria to eat. Right, where you go through Morrison's or Piccadilly or somewhere like that, and you go through and you get to kind of pick and choose what it is. Now, you can really get in a jam here, because you might pull in thinking you're at a buffet, and it turns out you're at a cafeteria and you've got to pay for all these items, right? You may, get in a, you may get in a mess. But the reality is, what we tend to want to do with our lives is sort of live life cafeteria style. Sort of pick and choose what we want. We go through, we kind of take a look and say, I'll have some of this or some of that, maybe not that, maybe not this. We tend to want to customize our lives. This is kind of a thing even that folks sell, life coaches and things like that. The idea of customizing your life. Doing, you, you do you, right? You live your truth. You, you do what you're supposed to do. You focus on yourself, on doing whatever makes you happy. Now listen, I think happiness is a good thing. I think the Bible talks about happiness. The, the Beatitudes, that word blessed means happiness, right? Happy is the man. All through the Bible, the Psalter opens in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, right? It's a good thing to be blessed and happy. But the reality is when we live our lives like this, cafeteria style, as if there's any way to live and it's up to us, it actually does the opposite what we think makes our lives more miserable and yet nonetheless to say there's only one way to live that the gospel is for all of your life and all of your life is summed up in the gospel when you trust Jesus to our flesh and even to our modern sensibilities it's an offensive idea you were running well Paul says you were running well what a good reminder this running metaphor is for us. If you've ever had to run a long distance or spend any amount of time doing something grueling, something difficult, you just know you have to walk for a whole day. You know that it takes a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of preparation. If you're going to run a half marathon or a marathon, you've got to prepare really for months. Most of us would need to prepare for a very long time to have the stamina and endurance needed to run such a long distance. Life in Christ is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Oftentimes, we want to be living our lives with Jesus based entirely on the passion we had when we were saved at an early age or at a later age when we were first saved. So some of us are still trying to regain the sort of passion we had maybe in the, in the uh, brightest days of our Christian walk when you first really began to really run after Jesus. For me, that was in college. For me, that was in college when I really began to get to know the Lord and to dig into the things of God. And sometimes it can feel like maybe something's wrong you, when you don't feel that same passion, that same energy as you had in those days. But I, I say regularly to myself and our staff, and sometimes here, I, I would much rather have a whole bunch of faithful plotters okay, than folks who are really passionate sprinters, but who can't go the long run. I, I would love to have a church full of tortoises rather than a church full of hares. Now, sometimes the hares are helpful. They help kind of motivate us, make us pick up the pace a little bit. There's nothing wrong necessarily with having that energy when 
God gives it, but life in Christ is a marathon and not a sprint. But it's a marathon, though, that involves all of our life. Everything that we have, all of our energies, every option we have in the long run belongs to Jesus. You see, there's an absoluteness to the calling of Christ. There's an absoluteness to the gospel. And to stray from it is to abandon the truth. This persuasion, Paul tells them, you were running well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. That is, this movement away from the gospel is an abandonment of the truth, and it is not of God. To stray away from the gospel is not only simply to go the wrong direction, but it is to abandon God himself. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, you're tolerating these thoughts, you're tolerating these ideas, you're giving in to these things, and perhaps you're saying, well, it's just a little bit of this. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And such is true with the gospel. We need to let the totality of our lives be leavened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cut out. We need to cut out the legalism. We need to cut out the backside. We need to cut out these things. We have to be careful and guard our lives to make sure that we're living knowing that this gospel is for all of life. There are no other options for us. As believers. And oh friend who's struggling, oh friend who's wrestling with these things, there is no other option for your joy, for your satisfaction, for your hope besides hope and joy and satisfaction in Christ. It's for all of your life. It's offensive to us to hear that, but it is the truth. Second of all, not only is the offensive gospel for all of life, but second of all, the offensive gospel is total truth total truth there's a, i've alluded to it already but there's a popular saying afoot in the world today it's the idea that folks need to live their truth live their truth i just read a quote from oprah this week saying the greatest value of my life was being able to tell my truth and you can see the way this several years ago when i was sort of coming of age in college and learning about worldview and things like this uh, this idea of uh, pluralistic thinking that was rooted in what philosophers call postmodernism was all the rage to talk about. And it's the idea that what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Well, that idea that was sort of academic then has just made it into the water of popular thinking. Folks are just simply saying, now that's my truth, and you can't argue with my truth. Now, it is difficult to argue with someone's experience, but that's a different word than truth, isn't it? No, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me is fundamentally nonsense. And in fact, you, people are starting to notice this. What happens when my truth interferes with your truth? Whose truth wins? Right? We live in a world where we're dealing with things like whether someone who was born a certain gender and believes they're another gender for, through whatever series of circumstances they've come there, can they, what sports teams can they compete with? Well, that's true. That's colliding, isn't it? That's, that's, that's different concepts of truth that are colliding and impacting people. But I want you to notice something that's said here in verse 10. I want you to notice this. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. 
Notice, just think about that verse in light of verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Do you see the way that Paul is showing that truth is at stake? Paul's showing that when you abandon the gospel, you are abandoning truth. And, and just think about that sentence. Just think about that sentence through modern ears for just a moment, how offensive that would be to so many people. I trust you would take no other view. Well, Paul, don't you think that my opinions matter too? We're Baptists. I thought we believed in the autonomy of every believer and in every local church and the priesthood of every believer. Don't you think I should be able to think whatever I want to think? Think about how offensive this idea is that, furthermore, Paul would say that someone else would be penalized for their opinion and their thoughts on things. But the reality is that the gospel represents total truth. There are no pockets where something is true and another pocket where it's not. Truth is truth, and truth belongs to the Lord. My friends, I want you to see and I want you to know that the gospel is absolutely true. Everything about it is true. It really happened that Jesus came into the world. It really happened that He is the Son of God. It really happened that He died a sinner's death on the cross despite not deserving it. It really happened that in time and space history, Jesus Christ, who was dead, was made alive again by the Spirit of God. He rose in triumph. He conquered sin, death, the devil, and the grave right there in that moment. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father. The gospel is true. But it also makes sense of everything in the world. There's nothing in the world that the gospel doesn't make sense of. This is, this is why I'm a Christian. This is why I'm a Christian, because the gospel is totally true. There's nothing that perplexes me about the world that doesn't make more sense when I try to understand it in light of the gospel. I can't figure out why we're so bad. You know? We, you know, there's got to be more than, man, they just wasn't raised right. That's what we want to say, isn't it? Us, those of us here in Alabama. But you were raised right. What's your problem? <laughs> think about it. You think about it. Think about the way siblings even can go on such divergent paths. And I, I struggle just with the what philosophers call the banality of evil, just the everyday simple, evil, the ugly things in the world. But I, I wrestle with the big ticket items too. I struggle with how things like the Holocaust happen or how things like abortion happen here in such a widespread way. Yeah, I wrestle with, with these things. Then you have fresh evil that crops up over time, like Holocaust denial and things like that, where these things just don't go away. felt like several years ago there was a real sense of a hope for progress among people. And as time presses on and marches on, it feels like all of our hopes and dreams for utopia crash again and crash again, crash again. Can't figure out why we're so bad until I open up my Bible. The Bible says that we're fallen creatures, that we're sinners, that the totality of who we are has been impacted, has, has been impacted. It, it, it starts to make more sense. It's just like sometimes I'll talk to people about the sinfulness of people and the fact I believe in original sin and that children are born with sin and oftentimes when they got little bitty babies 
You know, they're like, you're telling me you don't believe my daughter's innocent? Or my child is innocent? I say, the first time you get a call about a bite at preschool, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Nobody here taught their kids to fight. No, no, nobody teaches you to be selfish. Why are we so bad? But then sometimes I wonder how in the world we're so good. How, how can random evolutionary design produce what's been produced in human beings? How are we so set apart from other creatures? How are we able to build and create? Well, always, I mean, I just look around at something like this. This building, built in 1927. It stood the test of time. It's beautiful. It's ordered. I don't think if I brought my dog in here, he would think, man, what a beautiful building must be created for the worship of God. I think he would chew the pews. I know he would. What makes sense of our goodness except that we're created in the image of God? What makes sense of those things? And what gives me hope for these simultaneously glorious and wretched creatures that we are? What gives me hope for the gospel that deals with both? Because of a son who is the image of God, who came into the world and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, and yet who tasted death for us all, who took all the wickedness and dirtiness and filthiness of the world unto Himself and suffered the wrath of God so that we might have hope forever. What is there but the absolute truth of the gospel? What narrative is there that makes sense of everything in the world but the gospel? It's absolutely true. It's offensive, though, to talk about absolute truth. It's offensive to not act like every single opinion and every single thought is equal. How long? How long? Just as a note, how long will we be able to differentiate between right and wrong at all with a worldview like that? The days coming where the things even that secularists feel are wrong and evil today, they don't feel like are wrong and evil any longer. The gospel is also exclusively true. There's no other view, Paul says. We tend to even want to add seemingly good religious things to our gospel, but the gospel is exclusive. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's only Jesus. It's Jesus or nothing. And finally, the offensive gospel is radically cross-centered. And this is the most offensive thing about it. Apparently, some people argued that Paul even still preached circumcision. Maybe that's what the Galatians had written to Paul about, perhaps, if they wrote him, or perhaps what he heard that these people came in and said, well, you know, Paul's teaching and preaching that everyone uh, should be circumcised. Maybe you read through the book of Acts. Ben and I were talking about this earlier this week. Uh, about If you go read through the book of Acts, you can see some things there where it, somebody might make an argument that Paul was teaching circumcision. But he's clarifying himself here. He clarifies himself elsewhere. That if I was still teaching and preaching this, why am I persecuted for not? Because if I start to teach and preach the law in this way, then the offense of the cross has been removed. And then he goes on to say, one of the most troubling things for most people that is in the Bible. Notice what Paul says. We won't go deep into the details here, but I want you to feel the weight of what he's saying. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. 
One, one commentator said it like this. For those of you who are so, so focused and fixed on circumcision, I wish the knife would, would slip. That's how poignant and pointed Paul's critique here. It's an insult. But I want you to understand the full context. In Galatia, there was a cult to a goddess named Sybil, and one of the requisites for one to be a priest in the cult of Sybil was to be castrated, was to be emasculated. In other words, what I think Paul is saying is, if you have false teachers coming in and telling you to abandon the gospel through circumcision, what, why not go all the way into the wisdom of the world? In other words, I'm sure the law of God felt exotic and holy and, and something beyond the gospel to those who had grown up pagan in a world where cults like this exist. Cults that make us uncomfortable to even think about in First Baptist Church. Right? I, I know that your cheeks get a little flushed when we talk about these things. And frankly, in a lot of ways, that's precisely the point. It's uncomfortable to think about. But what Paul is saying, those of you who are saved from these almost unspeakable things in paganism, you have to understand Jesus saved me from law-based self-righteousness to the point that if Christ had not intervened, rather than writing to you about the gospel, I would be seeking to kill you for believing these things. And he wanted them, I believe, to feel the shock of what it meant to abandon the gospel. In the same way earlier, he talked about them being bewitched and, and sort of talked about this legalism as a fall into witchcraft. Here, he's associating this fall into legalism with a fall back into their pagan roots. He wants them to feel the weight of how radically cross-centered the gospel is because he says to add anything to it, and especially circumcision, is to remove the offense of the cross. You're trying to make a showing in the flesh. You're trying to prove an outward righteousness. You're trying to add something to the gospel, he says. And he says, at the end of the day, that sort of abandonment of grace is no different than if you were to just give up like probably some of your friends have done and go back to paganism. Go back to Sybil. Leave Jesus all together. You see, my friends, the cross is offensive because it takes all of our righteousness. Not just our sin. Not just our sin. You notice there's nothing you add to the cross. Have you noticed this? You weren't there. I love the old spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know what the answer is? No. You weren't. Even his closest compatriots abandoned him there at the cross. Even those who are at his right and left hand, though they died at the cross, they were not actually with him in what he suffered. You see, the cross is offensive because it takes not only our sins and tells us about our sins, but it exposes even our righteousness. It exposes even that which we can do in the flesh. It exposes even our ability to keep the law itself for what it is, what the prophet Isaiah called filthy Rags. What Paul calls dung elsewhere. There is no righteousness in you. There is no righteousness 
in me. And I was raised to be a good little Christian boy in Boaz, Alabama, with good values and good morals and everything else, just like so many of you were. And my righteousness is not enough. Not only have I been forced to look at the mirror through the cross and to look at it and to see how bad I am, but I've also been forced to look in the mirror and see those things which I'm most proud of, those things which I'm best at, those areas and places where I'm most righteous are still nothing, nothing before a holy God. The cross is deeply offensive. If we really catch the message of the gospel, so often our first reaction is anger. Anger about what is said. Anger about what Jesus would say about us. Anger that I'm not enough. Anger that my truth isn't actually true. Anger that all that I've built is like shifting sands. Anger that the house of cards is being toppled. But rising up under the shame and the frustration and the anger and the offense, do you feel it? Do you feel the warmth and the beauty and the joy and the hope of the reality that you are loved by a Savior whose love knows no ends, whose love knows no bounds, the width and breadth of which is completely unfathomable? Were we to go to the deepest place on this earth, were we to go to the very center of this place, We've still not even yet begun to reach the sorts of depths that are present in the love of the Savior who has set His grace upon you who have put your faith in Him. He loves you. He cares for you. And though the message of the cross is offensive, the message of the cross is good news for sinners who need a Savior. Jesus did what you couldn't do. Do you feel that love? I hope you do. I hope you do. And I hope you would respond to His grace today. Either as a believer already or, oh, by God's grace, I hope. Those of you who have never experienced it for the first time would experience it today. I want to offer an invitation. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I I really believe, I really believe, no matter how bad you are, no matter what you've done, I really believe, I really believe if you say, I'm done with those sins, I'm turning from those sins in repentance and by faith, I'm going to embrace God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe you will be saved. It doesn't have to be here, but it can be. It can be right there where you are. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, I believe you'll be saved. But if you want someone to talk to and pray with you, I'll be right down here waiting on you. Second of all, you may be a believer. You may say, I just need some, someone to pray for me. I need some time to spend with the Lord. I need to respond to this truth. This altar's open or you can respond to the Lord right where you are. If you need someone to talk to, you know where to find me. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy today it would be for me to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I'd like to invite you to come. Let's pray together.